0: And welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a lot of great articles to talk about today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
2: So let's get started with our first link. First First link. link. Well, Gizmodo is reporting that a tunnel that was discovered with Aztec carvings is about to get reburied after the project lost its funding. What? I know, right? I mean, okay, I get that they're not going to keep digging, but why would you go through (laughs) the effort of putting the dirt back? Well, sadly, the Government Bureau, which is the National Institute of Anthropology and History, ascribed the reburial to losses suffered during the COVID pandemic. And they're hoping <laughs> that putting dirt back on top of the indigenous artworks will be enough to keep it safe until someone has the means to properly build an on-site exhibit for the public.
0: I mean, I guess it's sort of like repacking something in in styrofoam pellets. Like, you're like, we got to protect it. That's but- exactly right. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> And this particular archaeological dig has some really amazing stuff. They found some carved images of animals, raindrops, a war shield, and even a temple structure were among the excavated artworks. Hmm. The images were petroglyphs, which are carvings in stone, and stucco panels. And though the designs were pre-Hispanic, they were made on a tunnel more indicative of European construction. So this is suggesting that indigenous workers from the area likely helped construct the dam. They said the temple carving was likely a dedication to the Aztec rain god. The allusions to water were probably intentional as the tunnel was one opening of a 17th century dike system that was built to manage water levels in the area to avoid flooding. Apparently, this dike held fast for 20 years but couldn't handle a disastrous flood in 1629, which inundated the tunnels for five years. So they had originally planned to move the stone and stucco artworks to a local community center and replace them with replicas in the eventual exhibit at the site so that people could walk into the tunnel and see the scale of the system up close. But It's all put on pause because now they have to undo their work of the last two years, which has to be heartbreaking for so many reasons.
0: Yeah. I mean, at least uh, you've convinced me it's better to put the dirt back than to just abandon it as is and let, you know, squatters
2: go in there and just graffiti the whole thing up. Oh, that's that's generous. I mean, it would totally be inviting Tomb Raider wannabes, right? Like, ooh, (laughs) ancient artifacts. We're going to put that on eBay. No one's going to know. We get to do some ancient urban exploration. Yeah. You got to keep those Lara Crofts away. You don't want
1: (laughs) them. They're really up to
2: no good, let's be honest. (laughs) Next link.
1: Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from discovermagazine.com, and it's titled, This Cyclic Model of the Universe Has Cosmologists Rethinking the Big Bang.
2: Uh Uh Uh-oh.
1: Yeah. Whenever scientists get to thinking about the Big Bang (laughs) or what it might not be, you know it's trouble. (laughs) So in Paul Steinhardt's Corners of the Cosmology World, to say that history repeats itself would be a laughable understatement. That's because, according to him and a handful of peers, the universe's form might be hurtling into a new cycle every trillion years or so. Proponents of this model are asking us to rethink the Big Bang and the rapid inflation of the universe, and they contend that doing so could fill in some of the biggest gaps in our common understanding of the way that space and time work. So, the generally accepted understanding of the universe, which is about 14 billion years ago, the Big Bang happened. In the early seconds, the laws of physics as we understand them did not apply, and all that would eventually become matter burst forth in a matter of seconds, and spread in such a way that the universe became highly smooth. Okay. And smoothness on an enormous scale just means that the things within the universe are relatively evenly distributed. And on a smaller scale, like between galaxies or within a solar system, matter is lumpy and filled with clusters. So inflation is part of the current standard model of the universe called the Lambda Cold Dark Matter Model, or LCDM. And in the LCDM, the shape of the universe's trajectory looks in some depictions like a funnel with its wide top growing and spreading further over time. Mm-hmm. But that's just one interpretation. There are others that have arisen out of the same bits of information that scientists can actually observe and measure in real life with observational astronomy. The inflation model was supposed to explain why, for example, the universe appears so homogeneous on a huge scale without the same initial conditions. But, Steinhardt says, there are so many possibilities that arrive from an inflationary model that makes the model itself less useful. Previous models, for instance, don't rule out predictions about the cosmos that are wrong. He says, it's like I came to you to explain why the sky is blue, but then when you look at my theory more closely, you realize, oh, my theory could have also predicted red, green, polka dot, striped, and random (laughs) colors. And then there's the singularity problem. The inflation theory, Steinhardt argues, also gets stuck at the point before the Big Bang, because according to it, there is nothing before it. Mm -hmm. And it's a fundamentally philosophical problem with the Big Bang, which is that there's an after, but there's not a before, which I've always had a problem with the Big Bang from that perspective, Mm -hmm. because it's like scientists just waving their hands and being like, You know, close enough. Right, right. Uh, Let's not (laughs) talk about
0: this other part.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just focus on what came out the other end and don't worry about where it started. Uh, Excuse me. I I don't know why that sounds so much more vulgar than I meant it to. (laughs) So in a related problem, there's also some difficulty in reconciling the inflation theory with string theory and quantum mechanics. So if the model correctly described the universe, other accepted frameworks of physics would agree with it. Scientists proposed a model that could work mathematically in a few ways. So, Steinhardt and Turok's model of a cyclical universe is one of them. Its core principles are these. The Big Bang was not the beginning of time. There was a previous phase leading up to it, with multiple cycles of contraction and expansion that repeat indefinitely. And the key period defining the shape of our universe was right before the so-called bang. And there you would find a period of slow contraction called the big crunch. Mm. Yeah. You've probably actually heard of this term before because it's not exactly a new idea in physics. But I guess this is being elaborated upon with our latest understanding of quantum theory and string theory, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. And like the LCDM, a cyclic model would also account for dark energy, an unobservable force that scientists believe is behind the accelerating expansion of the universe... But in Steinhardt and Turok's models, things get a little more like science fiction in that they have two identical planes, or brains, in string theory, which is an object that can have any number of dimensions, that's spelled B-R-A-N-E-S, mm. when those come together and expand apart. And we can observe the three dimensions of our plane, but not the extra dimensions of the other. So dark energy is both the force leading the brains into a collision with separation between them, and then expansion of the brains themselves usually follows, and dark energy draws them together again, once they're as flat and smooth as they can become. I'll be honest, I don't totally know how to conceptualize that. But for instance, Gianni, the researcher, is also not so sure because of some of the assumptions this model brings in from string theory. He likes another model from Roger Penrose, a theoretical physicist at Oxford, who came up with what Penrose himself called an outrageous new perspective on the universe. And Gianni says, I was completely amazed by it. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) it's hard to wrap your head around. In the distant, distant future, our solar system and galaxy will be... Engulfed by black holes, which eat up all of the other mass in the universe, and then after an unimaginable amount of time, only black holes will exist. And measurements of scale, Penrose explains, no longer apply at this stage, but the shape of the universe remains.
2: Hmm. You know, on just sort of a layman's, I am clearly not a scientist, but I like the idea that instead of this spontaneous conception iteration of the Big Bang, we have something mm-hmm. more organic that reflects. I don't know, like when you talked about the two plane brains kind of moving on each other, it was almost like tectonic plates, right? In an almost like organic breathing format. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It mirrors the way that we've told our stories and myths in human culture for so long. Mm -hmm. Like this fits to me on a very like prosaic type of scale with zero scientific insight.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the thing that I'm curious about is like, okay, so my understanding is like we stretch and we stretch and we stretch, we hit that maximum and then we start contracting again. But when we're contracting, what does that do to time? Does that like, do, do we undo all of it? Do I get to live again in the future as an old person going all the way down to a baby?
2: Because because time gets messed up when you start doing stuff like that. That's mm-hmm. true. But, you know, time also gets messed up when we get older. So maybe us getting older and time speeding up is just part of this cyclical exhale. Right. It's not a perception. It's real. Yesterday went yeah. slower than today. I mean, <laughs> look, after I turned 30, it sure feels real. Okay? Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it is true that the more mass there is, the slower time moves. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you know, in however many trillion years, we'll all be dead. But on the other hand, by that time, there will probably not be any more time, and it will, like, literally slow down until everything is static and frozen. And that's the so-called heat death of the universe, where entropy Mm -hmm. reduces to zero, and there's nothing more that can happen. But in this model, I think it just shrinks even more until, like, there's no mass or time, because it's all at the mathematical extremes if i'm understanding this correctly mm-hmm. like you know cuz where black holes are regular physics doesn't apply mass doesn't apply like it's all it gets real weird in there um, <laughs> that's my layman's understanding <laughs>
0: that's fair that's fair physics gets real weird i agree with that mm-hmm. yeah, yeah no argument here <laughs>
1: <laughs> next link next, next link.
0: link all right this next article is from the guardian and it's called bad genes not rock and roll
2: excess killed elvis presley Oh, oh, no. Yeah. Are you say Okay, spell jeans for me here because this could go a couple of <laughs> different ways. It's uh, G E N E S. It wasn't
0: pants that killed him. You know, in the 70s, he wore some really wild stuff. That's so true. It, it, I, I'm it wouldn't not going <laughs> <laughs> So the evidence is admittedly a little interpretive because it comes from a new biography of Elvis that looks at his family history and medical record rather than any kind of direct study of his remains. Hmm. But it is fairly compelling nonetheless. So the book is called Elvis Destined to Die Young by Sally Hodel. And one of the first big revelations that I did not know was that Elvis's grandparents were first cousins. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, that can obviously cause some significant genetic problems. But Hodel is quick to point out that it was a fairly common practice at the time and not just among, you know, rural hillbillies. She notes, for example, that while poor Americans often married within their families because they were the only other people around, Rich Americans of that era also frequently married their cousins in order to keep wealth in the family, including Mm -hmm. Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. They were cousins. What? Yeah. And and it was a money thing, apparently. (laughs) So Hodel says that Elvis's mother, Gladys, died in her mid-40s, just like Elvis, and three of her brothers did as well, even though none of them were taking any of the heavy medications that he was. She says, Mm. if you look at Gladys's health records and the records of his uncles, they all had this really rapid decline over the last five years of their lives that almost exactly matches Elvis's. Hmm. And that's, you know, really the crux of her argument is that he was taking all these pills at the end of his life, not to get high, but to dull the pain from very real physical ailments. Well, do we know what the ailments could have been? Well, and there's some listed in the article, and I think the book goes into really stark detail about him. She says he suffered from diseases in nine of his 11 body systems, five of Oof. which were present from birth. And these include things like alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, which can attack the lungs and liver, as well as colon issues, an immune deficiency, and lifelong insomnia. Oof. And, you know, the fact is that he was taking more than a normal amount of medication for these diseases, and Hodel acknowledges that most addiction specialists have heard all these same excuses from their patients about why they're hooked on painkillers. But even after that, she argues that his self-medication wasn't out of indulgence, but out of a sense of responsibility, he felt to continue performing so that he could support his extended family. Yeah. Because by the 1970s, he had 10 relatives living with him full time at Graceland and he was financially supporting another 90 or so across the country. <gasps>
2: oh, my wow. God. Yeah. His
0: whole family was leeching off him. Uh, she says he regularly confided in his friends that he was sick. He didn't feel good, but he had to go back out on tour because everyone was relying on him. Oh, yeah, it's kind of sad. And, you know, at the end of the day, Hodel says she's not trying to make Elvis out to be a superhero. She's just trying to put him squarely in the middle as a human. Right. She says everyone tries to either mythologize him as the greatest man who ever lived or else mock him as this washed up, overweight drug addict who died on the toilet. Right. Mm -hmm. She says, quote, he deserves to be treated like a historical figure like Henry Ford or Thomas Edison. But instead, he gets weighed down by sensationalism. And that keeps us from the truth.
2: That's super fair.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I feel better now about eating peanut butter and banana sandwiches. (laughs) I'm not destroying my life. I'm self-medicating for good reason.
2: (laughs) Well, I like the idea. I mean, nothing humanizes someone more than like illustrating the kind of pressure that they're under because, you know, we've heard so much more about. David Bowie Tom Petty Prince all of that right like so many of them had this like pressure to continue performing to the level that they did 10 20 30 years ago which is just not physically possible right right you wouldn't
0: expect a professional baseball player to still be playing in his 60s and 70s and you wouldn't be making fun of him like oh look he's washed up he can't do it anymore of course he can't do it anymore are you kidding yeah like we should be done by our 30s. Yes. <laughs> yes. If I could get out of all of my professional obligations by my mid-30s and just retire. Fabulously wealthy, of course. Like,
2: that's, that's the key. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the dream. right? right?
2: <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. This was one that caught my eye from Sharing Science on Medium.com. What do you guys know about how
1: rust can kill you? I'm pretty sure I shouldn't eat it, but besides that... (laughs) Yeah,
0: I wasn't
2: aware that rust was any kind of deadly threat. Well, yes it is, and Uh here, we're going to (laughs) explain. But, you know, it's in a particular context, at least how this article lays it out, but we got to first talk about what rust is anyway. So, rust is specifically the conversion of iron into iron oxide. Mm. So, it occurs when iron metal is exposed to any source of oxygen, typically in the atmosphere. And we know that rust formation is catalyzed, or sped up and encouraged, by the presence of water, especially salt water. The water works its way into tiny microscopic holes and cracks in the metal. Then the hydrogen atoms in water may combine with other molecules to form acids, which just eats away at the metal even more. And the oxygen atoms bind to the iron to create more rust. So this is why rust is a huge problem on ships where metal is constantly exposed to the salt water of the ocean. Mm -hmm. So because oxygen is one of the ingredients, as rust forms, it pulls oxygen out of the air. So if you're in an enclosed space, this can lead to the oxygen level dropping to dangerous levels. This has happened in the anchor locker of a ship where three sailors died after entering the enclosed space. There was apparently a recent TikTok video that went viral where a worker talks about how his boss encouraged workers to ignore safety precautions and enter enclosed, rusty spaces. Obviously, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, has rules designed to prevent workers from being exposed to these dangerous environments. And what makes this particularly dangerous is that the human body does not detect a lack of oxygen. It only detects the level of carbon dioxide. Hmm. So if you step into an enclosed space and don't realize something is wrong, you pass out. You don't choke and struggle like you do in movies. Maybe if, Mm -hmm. you know, there's carbon dioxide, you start coughing. If it's a lack of oxygen, you just slip peacefully. Wow. Mm -hmm. And if someone has passed out or is not responding after entering an enclosed space, don't follow them in. Even if you try to hold your (laughs) breath, you're not aware of the lack of oxygen until you pass out. So you have to call for help if you do not have the appropriate safety gear to enter. So now the article likes to go back to this whole tetanus thing, which is usually how people think about, oh, the rusty nail, don't get tetanus, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The interesting thing here is tetanus has nothing to do with rust. Mm -hmm. Instead, this is just another situation where correlation does not indicate causation. Rather, the bacteria that causes tetanus likes to live in soil. Specifically, it likes soil with a fairly high level of organic matter, which usually means the soil will be nice and damp. So guess what happens to any metal that's in a damp, organic, soil-filled environment? It rusts. Yeah. You get rust on it, right? So, so if you're stepping on a rusty nail or cutting yourself on a rusty bit of metal, you're just already in the environment where the tetanus-causing bacteria thrives. Mm-hmm. But just remember, rust consumes oxygen. So if you're in an enclosed environment with rust this is something to be aware of.
0: Yeah. It's like that classic scenario of like grandpa had a bunch of old fancy cars in the barn and you go and discover them. But if they're all rusted out and the barn is reasonably airtight, you don't want to go in and check out what he had. You got to wait. Correct. Plus, you got to worry about ghosts, you know. Right. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Especially (laughs) with classic cars. Those ghosts are going to be jerks.
2: Or we get a Stephen King Christine situation where the car itself is (gasps) possessed and has a spirit. And, you know, we just don't want to get into it. So Bring a buddy, check your oxygen levels, and make sure you're filming for TikTok. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link.
1: So, have either of y'all ever wondered what is the world's deepest cave?
2: You know
0: what? Just this second, I wondered I'm yeah. <laughs> now questioning. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I that's very know. convenient yeah. Yeah. because <laughs> this article comes to us from zmescience.com. It's titled, What is the world's deepest cave? <laughs> So, with a record depth of 2,212 meters, or 7,257 feet, wow. the Varevkina cave is the deepest cave measured thus far in the world. It's located in the Arabika Massif in Abkhazia, a breakaway region of Georgia that is supported by Russia. And despite its complicated geopolitics, the region is home to not one, but four of the deepest caves on Earth. Hmm. So. A decades-long history of exploration to reach the world's deepest cave, Varavikina, was discovered in 1968 by Soviet speleologists, which I think is maybe short for spelunking?
0: Yeah, I think that same route, yeah.
1: Yeah, who only explored a section 115 meters deep, or 377 feet, and couldn't comprehend the true scale of this gigantic cave system. And it was only much later in the early 2000s that new expeditions at Beryovkina were organized by the Moscow-based Perovo Spelio and Spelio Club Perovo Caving Organizations. And the work proved highly difficult and treacherous. Mm. The deeper the researchers went, the more it took for them to bring excavated material to the surface, and the greater the mortal peril of collapse. (laughs) Sure, yeah. Using a series of camps along the way, it took expedition members more than four days to reach the terminal slump at a depth of 2,212 meters, or again, 7,257 feet Due to the endless night, the cavers easily break their biorhythms, working at night and sleeping during the day. But thankfully, communication links with a surface base allow the cavers to contact the outside world and share updates about their progress. And there's a little image of it here, and it's just absurd to look at it like it really does go straight down for the first third and then it has these branching pathways that then go off the side a little bit but then you just like go all the way down until you hit this sort of like base level where it's all sort of flat and I guess just tunnels going back and forth very very (laughs) creepy yeah
0: I have a phobia about being trapped in a cave like the dark and the rocks and you're so far underground and at any point it could collapse like I I don't enjoy caves very much I'll go in like (laughs) the really well lit ones <laughs> like there's a tour guide and uh-huh. handrails, but uh, mm, I don't like them.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you're definitely going to love this next passage. <laughs> okay. <so. good>, <laughs> So they had to descend thousands of feet on ropes and crawl through water and mud-choked siphons. (laughs) The cave goes down almost (laughs) vertically and is full of wells with small horizontal passages. And the humidity is actually 100% with a four to seven degrees Celsius temperature range. (sighs) So this essentially means anybody descending will be freezing along the way. And that's about- Right, uh, little ice
0: crystals, yeah.
1: Exactly, yeah. So that's 40 Fahrenheit to like 44 Fahrenheit. And along the way they collected samples of rare shrimp and scorpions and possibly (gasps) new species of microorganisms.
0: Oh what okay, it's not bad enough that they're in the cave crawling through mud in (laughs) almost freezing temperatures, thousands of feet underground. There's scorpions too. Like that (laughs) that feels like overkill. (laughs)
1: There's also shrimp, so. Oh, yeah, so.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, Pavel Demidov, the head of the record-holding expedition, described Varyovkina as if you had to look at the far side of the moon. Demidov, unfortunately, passed away on August 23, 2020 in Abkhazia while descending into an unexplored cave in the Arabika mountain range, the 49-year-old man was killed by a large rock burst at a depth of 305 meters, or 1,000 feet.
0: See? See? He never should have gone down there. This, Okay, no. Mm -mm.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, well, he went to a different cave, to be fair. so Oh, okay. Well,
0: that makes it better. (laughs) That was the one without scorpions, just the one with the rocks killed him. Exactly,
1: yeah, yeah. So, Demidov's tragic death is illustrative of the kinds of dangers cavers face during their treks in 2018, Demidov's team, which included Peter Lyobimov, Konstantin Zverev, Evgeny Rybka, and Andrey Zizhnikov, I'm sure I've mispronounced most of those, <laughs> I apologize, as well as the National Geographic photographers Robbie Schoen and Jeff Wade, barely made it out alive after the cave was flooded. Heavy rains can cause water to collect, then because of the volume, just suddenly burst through cave openings so and that's also what happens with a rock burst where essentially it's just water pressure or i guess geological pressure and the rock just explodes which is (laughs) right
0: that's good yeah yeah
1: Yeah. so (laughs) and four of the world's deepest caves are found in this astonishing arabica massive and this is no coincidence because all of these caves are carved in karst terrain k-a-r-s-t which is a rugged landscape with a high elevation and very rich in soluble thick limestone Mm. karst covers up to 25 percent of the earth's land surface and where there is karst caves are bound to be close by the only limit is how far deep groundwater can seep into limestone Mm. before the pressure becomes too great and we now know from the soviet-era kola super deep borehole that this limit is far from being reached by a known cave So the Kola Superdeep Borehole, the deepest hole in the world, drilled into the earth from 1970 to 1994 until it reached a staggering depth of 12,262 meters or 40,230 feet. Wow. Soviet geologists found water still circulating at depths of 6.9 kilometers or 4.3 miles, which is more than three times deeper than Varyovkina's cave floor. So that implies that there may be much, much, much deeper caves out there. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, any super deep caves are probably inaccessible from the surface and would require some drilling to reach them, provided that the scientists can locate them. But remote Mm -hmm. sensing, such as electrical resistivity, seismic activity, and ground penetrating radar only work up to a relatively shallow depth or don't have the necessary resolution to identify an underground passageway only a few feet in width. But developing new methods to reach the world's deepest caves is worth it. Caves are filled with living organisms, particularly invertebrates and microbes that could help scientists discover antibiotics and other medicines.
0: Or kill us all.
1: <laughs> or kill us all. Yeah, that's totally possible. Because we have a lot of
0: limestone <laughs> around here in Texas, too. Mm-hmm. Like, it's always a-, a thing. There was actually a construction project by my house where they're, you know, digging out a road or something. And then they had to stop and put the whole thing on hold because they found a cave. And mm-hmm. it was a small one. But it's like, we have a lot of caves around here. Mm-hmm. And now I'm starting to think, well, maybe they all go really deep and they're full of shr- and scorpions and <laughs> we're gonna start digging to explore them and all of a sudden you like a sinkhole. I'm terrified of sinkholes. I don't okay. I don't like any of this.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be fair, a lot of this seems pretty unnecessary.
0: Yeah. What do you need to dig four miles beneath the surface core? What are you looking for? You don't need that medicine. You don't. Just
1: <laughs> <laughs> When I was reading about the Cola super deep borehole, I was like, oh, they were trying to dig to hell. They were trying yeah. to find hell. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're
0: like, how deep can we go before we've made a new cylindrical volcano that will just spew mantle up at us all the time like an oil rig and yeah. we will regret ever having dug it out? Yeah,
1: yeah. science. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, next link. Next, next link. link.
0: All right, this one from Wired is a quick but very pertinent question for some of us here on this podcast. Namely, can people still play the same games as they get older?
2: Like board games or mind games?
0: No, like video games. Okay, okay. (laughs) This is wired. You know, they're going to focus on the digital.
2: Well, you know, sometimes they get into neuroscience, and this could have been like people who are good at mind games as children turn into sociopaths, which I was waiting for.
0: That's right. And maybe they're not as good at being sociopaths as they get older. You could lose that. If only. (laughs) So with the first mainstream video games hitting the market in the early 80s, we now have many senior citizens who started playing in adulthood and we're rapidly coming up on the first generation of elderly people who have been playing video games their entire lives. It's basically us, right? We're getting older. Currently, a full 15% of gamers are over 55 years old, and the average age of gamers right now sits at 35 and keeps rising every year. Huh. But it's also very established in the scientific literature that things like reaction time and cognition start to deteriorate with age. So, you know, even if we're all sitting in the nursing home trying to play Civilization 12 or Final <laughs> Fantasy 37 or whatever, the question is will we be able to? Or, as the article puts it, quote, the older you are, the harder it is to get good. Mm. (laughs) So, Steen Reimers, a cognitive psychologist at City University London, says that, like so many things in life, the decline starts surprisingly early. (laughs) Reaction time, for example, peaks between the age of 18 to 24. And the standard drop between peak and retirement age is about 20 percent. And we have this data not only for reaction time in general, but for video games in particular, because an app called Aim Lab has an opt in program where you can send them your data as you're playing. And it's allowed them to collect some really detailed data over the course of time on their players. Hmm. So Aim Lab founder Wayne Mackey says we start to see a drop off in reaction time averages as early as 22 years old. And once you hit 40, it becomes much more rapid. In fact, just like in professional sports, some esports legends have now been at it long enough that they are genuinely starting to lose their competitive edge due to age. Justin Wong, the winner of a record nine EVO fighting game championships between 2001 and 2014, says that at 35, winning is getting noticeably tougher for him. Reimers also says that some elements of cognition decline even more rapidly than reaction time. In particular, switch costs or the extra time we have to take when we're forced to multitask. Mm. So in some experiments where subjects had to do two things at once, older people responded even more slowly than younger people compared to when the two groups only had to do one thing at a time. Mm. But it's not all bad news. The major (laughs) advantage that older people do have is crystallized intelligence. And that doesn't really deteriorate with age, at least until you start taking into account things like dementia, right? Mm So a veteran gamer might not have the same reaction time as their younger opponent, but they have ideas and experiences that may let them out-strategize an opponent who has maybe never been in a certain situation before. Mm,
2: Like if this level or game design reminds me of a puzzle I've done before, they can access that kind of information more so than a newbie.
0: Right. Or if they're just sticking to turn-based titles, they can take a couple extra seconds, make the right choice. It's not Mm. the same as
2: first-person shooters where it's
0: all about your trigger finger. Right. The other good news is that it's always possible to get better with practice, even for seniors. Mm. Young. Younger people do learn faster, but Mackie says that gamers in their 40s still measured an average of 18% improvement over just one week of consistent practice, which almost completely eliminates the discrepancy between them. Nice. And while middle-aged gamers tend to have more real-world responsibilities and thus less time for practice, they also tend to be able to maintain an interest for longer and are ultimately able to get farther in a fewer number of games, while younger players are more likely to get bored and move on to the next game. So overall, the verdict seems to be, yes, we're all still going to be gaming until the day we die. And (laughs) I personally think it's going to be really cool to see how nursing homes change over the next decade or two. Because once all their residents are digital natives, I think they're going to be completely transformed, right? No one is going to be playing bingo. There's going to be like, you know, a Call of Duty night. And there's going to be the communal switch. Yeah. There's going to be a screen in every room.
2: I'm getting this like Dave and Buster's retirement home vibe where it's like if they wanted to pivot into that, they could make a killing, y'all. Because you got food, you got entertainment, you just add some housing and medical care and boom. Yeah. I mean,
0: you got to watch out for the DDR machine. Nobody's going to be doing that
1: I felt pretty depressed about the idea of what my old age might look like, but now it's just one unending land party. That's pretty sweet.
2: Right. Yeah. And, and imagine getting to school whippersnappers with all of your old <laughs> slang. I would love to see that happen.
0: Yeah. Well, it's like right now, if you're playing with a stranger and you hear it's like clearly a 12 year old child, mm-hmm. that really sucks. But if someday you're playing and you hear like this 80 year old man smack talking you because he just beat you, mm-hmm. that's going to suck equally like that's going to be our revenge
2: <laughs> <laughs> next link
0: next, next link.
2: link all right let's switch tracks a little bit here to messy with a really interesting piece called history conveniently forgot to tell us about the transgender roman emperor
1: hmm. oh.
2: i had never even heard of this emperor his name was emperor Elagabalus or Heliogabalus. He came from a prominent Arab family in present-day Syria, and he served as head priest of the sun god Helios. He came to power at 14 years old, and according to historical records, he quickly developed a reputation for decadence, zealotry, and sexual promiscuity. And those biases have persisted through history up until now, pretty much. An 18th century historian, Edward Gibbon, wrote that Elagabalus, quote, abandoned himself to the grossest pleasures with ungoverned fury. Um, <laughs> Germany's leading historian of ancient Rome, Barthold Georg Niebuhr, said, quote, The name Elagabalus is branded in history above all others because of his unspeakably disgusting life. I may be editorializing <laughs> here, but I really <laughs> want to get across how unfairly this guy has been pilloried. Another example of a modern historian's assessment, quote, Elagabalus was not a tyrant, but incompetent, probably the least able emperor Rome had ever had. Only the archaeologist Warwick Ball describes him as innovative, a tragic enigma lost behind centuries of prejudice. So when he was alive, Elagabalus was a Roman statesman who kept close tabs on the lives of his emperors. In his writings, Cassius Dio, which is someone who was writing during Elagabalus's life, the writings refer to Elagabalus by feminine pronouns. They state that the emperor wanted to marry a former male slave and charioteer named Heracles. They state that Elagabalus delighted in being called Heracles' mistress, wife, and queen. Officially, Elagabalus was married five times and twice to the same woman, all before he was 18. But there were also rumors he married a man named Zodicus, an athlete from Smyrna. During his reign, women were first allowed into the Senate. He even gave his mother and grandmother both senatorial titles. You can even see them on coins and inscriptions, which is a rare honor for Roman women. Mm. Of course, this establishment of a woman's senate would be considered by his contemporaries as one of the many examples of his, quote, moral corruption. Right. That's sexual depravity right there, giving woman any power at all. Exactly. According to Dio, the emperor also wore makeup and wigs and preferred to be addressed as lady instead of lord. It was also recorded, and this is the kind of big clincher that this whole article thesis is about, it was recorded that he offered significant payments to any doctor who could give him the equivalent of a woman's genitalia by means of a surgical incision. And it's this detail that convinces some scholars to see Elagabalus as an early transgender figure. Mm -hmm. It's worth noting that in ancient Rome, cross-dressing was practiced during Saturnalia, which was an ancient pagan festival. But outside of that right, it was forbidden. Romans also used it as a punishment, ordering deserters to wear female clothes for three days before execution.
0: Oh, I like, know, right? we're going to kill you. But first, we're going to do the worst thing we can imagine, which is make you put on a dress. Exactly. Like.
2: Exactly. <laughs> Patriarchy, alive and well. Uh, a modern historian noted that Elagabalus is also alleged to have appeared as Venus and to have epilated his entire body. So removed all the hair from his body. Recurrent Mm. charges of effeminacy were leveled against him, and a painted portrait was sent to the capital prior to his arrival in order to accustom the inhabitants of Rome to his exotic experience. (laughs) Apparently, he was also an avid prankster. At banquets, he would reportedly serve peas with gold, lentils with onyx beans with amber, and sprinkling pearls in lieu of pepper, which as far as pranking goes, like, yeah, you might lose a tooth, but hey, that's got some real value. I mean, keep it, you know? Yeah, it's not the worst. (laughs) not the worst. Although at the end of some feasts, he would bring out lions and lepers, which would, I'm sorry, leopards with a D. Okay, that's different. Yes, that is different, (laughs) which would, you know, panic everybody at the party because they didn't realize they were tamed. And this little nugget just delighted me. The origin of the whoopee cushion is said to be traced back to this Roman emperor who regularly <laughs> pulled the practical joke at his aristocratic dinner parties. I mean, he was a teenager. After all, teenagers not Yeah, teenage. he was only like 18. Exactly, yeah. 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 So these eccentricities, namely his relationship with Hierocles, lost him his support from the soldiers of his Praetorian guard. According to Augustine history, the hard partying emperor lost the support of his courtiers as well. Dio also claimed that Elagabalus prostituted himself in taverns and brothels, and allegedly, when the finances of the Roman Empire were in dire straits, He proposed to prostitute himself for an insanely high price, which has been a theme of some modern-ish movies. I'm looking at you, 1980s Demi Moore movie, Robert (laughs) Redford. I can't remember the title, but eventually his grandmother decided that he and his mother were to be replaced by her other grandson, a then 15-year-old Severus Alexander. They ruled together for about a year until Elagabalus realized that his Praetorian guard preferred his cousin over him. At this realization, he organized several attempts to assassinate Alexander, like you do, Mm. but the Praetorians then mutinied and killed Elagabalus instead. Uh, It was pretty gruesome. They slaughtered his minions. They tore out their vital organs. They then fell upon Elagabalus as he hid cowering in a latrine. Wow. They dragged his body through the streets by a hook and attempted to stuff it in a sewer, but it didn't fit, so they threw him into the river. Aw. But I mean, you know, overall, this was a teenage boy struggling with hormones, discovering his own sexuality, thrown into a lifestyle which offered him anything he wanted, complete power Mm -hmm. and wealth, with no hint of the consequences for acting on his desires, and then gave him punishment for taking it.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, like, at least he was emperor, so he was a little bit protected But it didn't actually help him in the end.
2: No, no. And what's difficult is that there was such a vast propaganda campaign after his death that it's kind of hard to know what is and isn't true about him, right? Mm-hmm. The only surviving evidence we have of his brief life was written by people who had a lot of motivation to discredit and vilify him, yeah. right? But as out history notes, her reported atrocities and crimes however almost entirely fall under the categories of upsetting the gender, cultural and religious norms of Roman society. Yeah. They sound like a really awesome person to party with, to be honest.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Say Hello to the Tokyo Olympic Robots, The Secrets of the Alps' Strange Red Snow, and The International Space Station Had a Rough Day. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support us, you can go to patreon.com daminterestingweek damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.